we dilute what it means to be a disciple from the beginning. We, uh, and we want to give people an assurance. All right, you're saved. Mm -hmm. You said it. Mm -hmm. You raised your hand. All right, you're, 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 you're saved. Without really letting some time be there, not where they have to prove their salvation or earn their salvation, but letting some time be there to see, yeah, has there been a heart change? Like, is the Spirit of God in this person? I don't want to tell somebody as a pastor or just as a, as a, as a brother or sister. I mean, I love a person enough to say, hey, we'll, we'll wait and see. George Whitfield, preacher, Great Awakenings, thousands and thousands of people at a time. He'd be asked after he, he preached to thousands of people, how many people were saved? And he said, ah, we'll see six months or a year from now. And hmm. I mean, that's so different from yeah. today. We're like, yeah. oh, we had this many or this. Many. But, and he's not saying, well, they got to earn their salvation yeah. in the next six months. It's, yeah. And let's wait and see. And, and as, as people have a heart change, then I think they'll genuinely, when they read the commands in scripture, mm -hmm. they'll say, I want to obey these. How do I obey these? And there'll be a desire there um, as opposed to what we often find ourselves doing um, and that's saying, well, do this, do this, do this, and people walk away like the rich young ruler that you talked about earlier. Okay, I feel bad. I mean, I'm not going to do that. Um, and there's just not been a fundamental heart change that then leads to life change and new purpose, new mind, new dreams, new passions. Uh, that really feeds into into a desire to make the gospel known. Like I think about uh, Heather and I, my wife, and uh, uh, you know our family story. And for for years we wanted to have kids. We had this desire for kids, but the Lord wasn't providing that in the way we had hoped. He's ended up providing in ways that we never could have imagined. But but fundamentally, there was a part of us that had a desire to create life mm -hmm. that had a desire to see life come from mm -hmm. us and that's just natural yeah. and the the fact that that wasn't happening was saying there's something wrong yeah if if there's sorry to go a little crass here but if reproduction isn't happening then what there's something physically biologically that needs to be addressed well if reproduction is not happening in a, in a Christian's life, like mm. there's something wrong at the mm. core here. Like yeah. there's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And, uh, and because being a disciple involves making disciples, I mean, that's always been there in, from beginning of Matthew to end of Matthew, it's just clear. So if we're not making disciples, are we really disciples? Like that's a huge question. Yeah. Well, for those of us who profess to be Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, is it enough to simply profess that, even to be personally convinced of that, or should there also be a tangible evidence of that in our lives, that we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus Christ? And if so, what does that look like? What does a true Christian look like? How are Christians, disciples of Christ, supposed to act? What do real followers of Jesus do? Obviously, the Bible has a lot to say about all of that, and there are probably many different answers that could be given to those questions. But there is one answer that applies to every one of those questions, and that answer is the word different. If you read the Bible, it is hard to deny that disciples of Jesus Christ are supposed to be different from everyone else. 
Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2, 9. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12, 2. In other words, be different than the rest of the world. The writer of Hebrews said, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.10. And of course, Jesus himself, referring to his disciples, said, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. John 17.16. So, based on those descriptions, I'd say we should act and look quite differently than everyone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, don't you think? I, I think if, if we've actually been renewed, sanctified, transformed, set apart... As Paul says, then undeniably there is a difference between Christians and the rest of the world. And because of that transformation, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. So all of these decidedly different people all put together then form the body of Christ, an altogether unique entity from anything else on this earth. And whether people like us or hate us, agree with us or think we are dead wrong, either way, one thing that everyone should be able to agree on is the fact that disciples of Jesus Christ are different. That we live differently than those who don't believe as we do. That we treat one another differently than others do. That we behave differently than people who don't share our faith. In fact, those who are not followers of Jesus Christ really should be able to see the change that has occurred in our lives. They should be able to see that difference by how we think and act toward others on a daily basis, which should include our consistent effort in making new disciples, as we just heard in the video. So, when was the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? And I don't mean someone at church, or your pastor, or, or at community group. I mean, when was the last time you talked to an unbeliever, someone who's not a disciple of Christ, about him? And again, the, the video's right. These are important questions that we should be asking ourselves because as a part of his final instructions, just before ascending to heaven, Jesus commanded his disciples to make more disciples, Matthew 28. We know that command applies to all of his disciples, including us today, because it was to be carried out among all nations and to the end of the age, neither of which have happened yet. So he says, followers of Jesus Christ, go make followers of Jesus Christ. Disciples, go make disciples. What exactly does that mean, Jesus? Some would say, well, that's evangelism. But the truth is, if we stop there, which many Christians do, then we're stopping far too short of all that Jesus intended when he gave that command. Because evangelism and discipleship are not synonymous. Evangelism is but one part of discipleship. It's obviously a very important and necessary part of discipleship. But discipleship is by no means satisfied by the ministry of evangelism alone. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
And I can say with confidence that teaching someone all that he has commanded us and being taught all that he has commanded us is not satisfied simply by saying a sinner's prayer. That may describe one part of an initial conversion experience, that's evangelism, but discipleship is actually a lifelong process. So it's true, you can't have discipleship without evangelism, but you can have evangelism without discipleship. And yet he didn't say, go make converts of all nations. He said, go make disciples of all nations. So when we evangelize, the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ through our testimony and the sharing of the gospel, which can lead to a conversion experience. Yes, but discipleship is everything that happens after that as we live out the gospel together for the rest of our lives. And so the Apostle Paul, after going into city after city and proclaiming the gospel and making converts, he would evangelize, then he would stay for a period of time. He would appoint elders, pastors to continue his work. He would often go back personally or through correspondence or by sending other workers back to those converts so that he could continue the ongoing process of discipleship right up until his death. So he wasn't just making converts. Paul was making disciples. Why? So they could in turn make more disciples because that is what true disciples do. So yes, it's important that we ask ourselves, when was the last time I told someone about Jesus? We, we should ask ourselves that question on a regular basis because it is very easy for the church to become inwardly focused, satisfied by our own personal discipleship to the point that we lose sight of the command to go and make disciples. And yet that's just the beginning. Because we should also be asking ourselves, am I right now today not only being discipled, but am I engaged in the ongoing process of discipling someone else? Am I reproducing the discipleship that's happening in my own life? Am I reproducing that in others? Am I making disciples? Because if we simply choose to soak in all that happens when we gather to be discipled, which is precisely what we're doing when we come together like this on a Sunday gatherings and in small groups and in our team ministries. We're being discipled together. But if we choose to take all of that in and then just keep it to ourselves, we are decisively not doing what Jesus commanded us to do. Because he said, disciples, go make disciples Share all that you have learned and and are learning about me with other people. So yes, we should do all of that, but we also have to go and make other disciples. He said, don't keep all of this to yourselves. Share it with all nations, with all people, to the end of the age, which for us means to our last breath, we share all that we can with everyone that we can. We don't ever stop sharing what we've learned and what we're still learning about him. Disciples, go make disciples. And so as we continue in our study through Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we find him continuing to disciple these believers in Philippi as he teaches them through his writings. And in this second chapter, which we're looking at today, he's describing for them not only what true disciples look like, but how to share that with others. And it's, it's worth noting that Paul expresses that in a very natural way. 
Not in a forced way, uh, trying to implement some kind of program within the church, but by simply teaching them how to live among each other, how to treat one another, and how that difference, that uncommon behavior, disciples making disciples, how that should set us apart from the rest of the world, so much so that the difference between Christians and all others really should be glaringly obvious to anyone who's paying attention. Okay, discipleship is what should be happening really as a matter of course as Christians experience life together as we live out the gospel both inside and outside of these church walls. It should spill out into the community and into our cities and into our neighborhoods. It should revolutionize the way we think about making disciples because discipling others is not a program. It's simply a matter of sharing Christ with them as we share our lives with them. So let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll begin reading with the first four verses. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So these first four verses of chapter 2 is Paul's response to the last four verses of chapter 1. So verse 27 of chapter 1, which is the beginning of those final four verses, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on to say, even when you're called by God to suffer for his sake, even then our lives should be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying, live your lives in a way that is consistent with what you say you believe. Live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, don't just profess to be disciples of Christ, but actually live your lives in a manner that is worthy of that name, disciple of Christ. Which, by the way, is a decidedly different way to live than how you lived before Christ in your life. And so this ending to chapter 1 then acts as an introduction to chapter 2, where in the first four verses that we just read, Paul begins to describe what living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ actually means in detail, specifically what it looks like to live as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, which sounds a little bit like a Hallmark card, right? Let's all just come together and exist in this beautiful state of peace, love, and happiness. It sounds very harmonious, and it is. The trouble is, that kind of unity among us doesn't just happen. I wish it did, but it doesn't. That kind of unity has to be achieved through a lot of very deliberate willful effort on our part because what is required to achieve that kind of unity worthy of the gospel runs counter to everything that we've been taught in our culture. 
It is a decidedly different way to live. So Paul explains how it works in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'm sorry, Paul. What did you just say? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, Paul, one more time. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Who does that? Who actually lives their lives that way? Who looks at another person and says to themselves, you know what, that person is more significant than I am. I'll tell you, that is so incredibly rare, at least in our culture, to find someone who actually lives like that. And when we do find people like that, even throughout history, what does everyone say about them? Wow, they sure are different. They stand out from the crowd. They are different. Now, who's supposed to be different? We are disciples of Jesus Christ, because living in a manner worthy of the gospel couldn't be any more different than how the world expects people to live. And of course, Paul knows that. So he says, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, if you're going to live like true disciples, then you must be humble toward God and each other to the point that you actually count other people more significant than yourselves. And just to underscore, to to emphasize the deliberate nature of the effort that must be made in order to be truly humble. When Paul uses the word humility in verse 3, he uses the Greek word to pinof frasune. Say that ten times fast. To pinof frasune, which refers to the humbling of the mind. In other words, humility isn't a character trait that we're born with. It doesn't just happen in your upbringing. It isn't simply the way you feel sometimes. No, we have to make a conscious decision to humble ourselves in our own minds and consider others more significant than ourselves. In fact, that Greek word for humility is also defined as a deep sense of one's moral littleness. So true humility is not so much a matter of us trying to falsely elevate someone else in our own minds. Rather, it is refusing to falsely elevate ourselves in our own minds. We'll talk more about how to do that in a minute, but Moises Silva says it this way. He says, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Because it is not in our nature, or for most of us, in our upbringing, and it is certainly not in our culture, to practice true humility. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman says, The human tendency is to climb the ladder of selfish ambition at the expense of others. Americans, for example, are taught from their youth that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Much modern social and psychological theory is indebted to the notion that members of the human species, like all other animals, are involved in a relentless quest to dominate others in order to survive. So we not only enter the church with the belief that we deserve to be made happy, but often with the notion that our pursuit of happiness at the expense of others is inevitable. 
I would not only agree with his supposition here, but I'd go a step further to say in my own experience, over a lifetime of being in many different churches, that the American church in many cases is rife with an inexcusable sense of entitlement, which is a slightly more polite version of the word arrogance. And so just one simple example. I'll tell you, there's nothing more off-putting when it comes to the church than when you walk into a church and the people are not friendly. There isn't much worse than that because when church members are unfriendly, it constantly communicates to those who are visiting that you have to earn your way into real fellowship with us. We're up here and you're somewhere down here and if you're lucky and you pursue us enough, just maybe you can become a part of this community, of this family, which should never happen in a church because that is not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. In fact, it is irreconcilably in conflict with true humility. So from day one, when we started this church, we decided that we would open our arms and our hearts to everyone who came through those doors, which is one of the reasons that we take the extended time in the middle of every service to connect with each other, which we've been doing from the start, so that everyone, and especially those visiting, understands how important it is to us that you're here and how much we genuinely want to have real relationship with you. And so a couple of years ago, we polled our congregation and we asked people to anonymously answer several questions. And one of those questions was, what do you like the most about our church? And we got all kinds of great answers about many of the different aspects of this church. And most people uh, gave more than one answer to that question. But one answer that showed up on every single survey in one form or another that we received back had to do with how almost instantly people felt accepted when they first came into this church. In fact, someone, uh, which I'll never forget, I think summed it up the best when they said this, every time I walk through those doors, I feel like I've come home. I can't think of a higher compliment or a better testament to the genuine humility of a group of people who are willing to lay down their own fear of awkwardness to step into what is for many not their comfort zone and to reach out to someone they've never met with genuineness and real affection so they will feel as welcome and accepted and belonging as the people who have been here all along. And of course, make no mistake, unity, real unity in the church, living in a manner worthy of the gospel goes much deeper than simply being friendly. But if we can't get that part right, then we surely won't get the rest of it right. It starts with true humility, humility toward God and each other. And so as Paul often does, he then gives us the ultimate example of what he's trying to teach us in the next seven verses, which are so beautifully and poetically written, describing Christ's own example of humble service. In fact, many scholars actually refer to these next seven verses as the hymn of Christ. In fact, many believe that Paul wrote these verses as a hymn for the church so they would always be reminded of the great example of humility that we have in the work and person of Jesus Christ. So let's keep reading together. Verses 5 through 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the pre-existent Christ, who by the way made it clear that he and the Father were one, John 10.30, he chose instead to consider equality with God something that could not be grasped who was there in the perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit creating the heavens and the earth, who had every right to remain in his high position of power and comfortably rule, yet driven by love. Instead, he humbled himself, taking on the weakness of human form, 2 Corinthians 8 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he humbles himself even to the point of death by crucifixion, which was the ultimate indignity. There was no stronger public statement that could be made by Rome than a person who was beyond contempt than those who were crucified. Yet he humbles himself to a horrific death, counting the interest of others more significant than his own, thereby coming, becoming the ultimate example of humility for us to follow. So the key to humility is not to focus on others or ourselves. The true key to humility is to focus on the one who is our greatest example of humility, of course, Jesus himself. Uh, Karl Barth, the great 20th century Swiss theologian, wrote, Christians do not strive against anybody, nor for anybody either, but for the faith. For the true disciple of Jesus Christ, our focus should always be on Jesus Christ, to whom Paul says every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. True discipleship means living with humility. Let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul opens the next section of this letter with, As you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which is simply another way of Paul saying, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, whether I come and see you or am absent. Chapter 1, verse 27. So after teaching them that, Discipleship, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, can only be fostered as we live with humility toward God and each other. Paul tells them that true disciples must also be obedient toward God and each other. As we work out our salvation, he says, with fear and trembling, which if, 
if Paul stopped right there, would sound an awful lot like we have to somehow earn our salvation, which is a dreadful thought because that is something that no one is capable of doing. Thankfully, Paul did not stop there. He continues right after telling the disciples to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the salvation that you need that must be worked out in your life with fear and trembling, humility, is actually work that God does in your life because it is a work that only God can do. Your job in that process is to be humbly obedient to that work that he is doing inside of you. And then Paul continues by describing just what that looks like in our everyday lives. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling and disputing being the opposite of obedience. And of course, this is discipleship training, really that is needed in the church today, just as much as it was then. You know, people... People love to criticize, first of all, because it's easy, and secondly, because it inflates our own egos. Now, there is, of course, constructive criticism, which very much has a part to play in the life of every disciple. We all need to be able to receive criticism that is communicated in real love with real compassion and real potential to help us improve in an area of our lives that may need to be improved. But that's not what Paul is talking about here when he says do all things without grumbling or disputing because he's actually recalling the Israelites who while wandering in the wilderness were described back in Deuteronomy 32.5 as a crooked and twisted generation. The exact words that Paul uses here in verse 15. And of course, uh, what were the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32 guilty of? They were guilty of grumbling and complaining. Questioning against God and each other, which Paul describes in detail in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And so Paul's teaching the disciples to be obedient to the work of Christ in our lives. Which means don't grumble or complain against the work that he's doing in you. And don't be critical of others to try and make yourself feel better about your own areas of weakness. But that's exactly what we do sometimes. Because frankly it's easy to criticize. Anyone can do that. Anyone can be critical of others. What's not so easy is when we see someone who doesn't have it all together which, by the way, none of us does. And instead of criticizing, we see them as God does, a human soul who was created by him for a purpose. And so instead of criticizing, we drop that grenade and walk out of the room, which is so easy to do. Instead, we commit ourselves to building that person up, to discipling them, which is the work that God has called us to do, to make disciples, which means in our obedience to that work, Instead of expressing criticism in order to make a point, we express the love of Christ in order to make a disciple. Paul says, do that, that you may be blameless and innocent children among God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, when you live in humble obedience to God and others, you will stand out from the rest of the world. You will shine as lights in this dark world. The difference between you and everyone else will be unquestionably obvious as you, disciples, make disciples. 
which is what he's referring to next as he continues by describing them as holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain because that phrase holding fast in the ancient Greek is the word epeko, which not only means holding fast or holding on to, it also means hold out to, to offer, to give, to present to someone else. In other words, Paul's not only saying, hold on to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, don't only just soak all in all the things we're doing here. Don't just soak all of that in and keep it to yourself and hold on to it. He's also saying, hold out the word of life, present it, give it to others, make disciples so that in the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's humble obedience for the disciple. It means making disciples, holding out the word of God. Let's finish our reading for today then. Verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your minister, a messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So in this last section of the chapter, Paul holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of disciples who live in humble obedience to God and to each other. Timothy, he says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's uh, proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. So Paul points out how different Timothy is. From all the rest. He's a true disciple. In fact, in verse 20, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one like him. Timothy's different. And then he goes on to extol the many virtues of Epaphroditus, including the fact that he risked his own life to complete what was lacking to Paul in their service to him. So Paul is honoring these men, these true disciples before the Philippian church as they have honored God and each other in their own faithful and humble obedience in service to the church. So Paul tells the Philippian Christians to do the same. He says, honor God and each other. And of course, the way we do that is through humbly and obediently living out, holding out God's word in our own lives and to those who we are in relationship with. And so using Jesus and Timothy and Epaphroditus and even himself throughout this chapter as examples, Paul says to the church, disciples, Make disciples. And then as we've seen, he tells them what that looks like, which is precisely how we honor those whom God has placed in our path. 
we humbly and obediently hold on to and hold out his word to them. All that he's commanded us, we hold that out to others, which is the very definition of true discipleship. And of course, all of that is not really a hard sell within the church because this is our safe space. This is where we feel comfortable talking about Jesus and his word. This is where most people understand what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. The problem for most of us is when we get out there, outside these walls, out into the community, out in the places where it's not always comfortable to talk about Jesus and his word, because not everyone agrees with us, and many don't understand us once we leave the confines of this building. And so instead of holding out his word and shining as lights into the world, where the glaring differences between believers and unbelievers should be obvious, instead we often just try to conform because we don't want to make waves. We don't want people to think that we're different. And so it becomes increasingly easier to simply blend in than it is to stand out, even though we are different. And we are called to let those differences shine like lights into the dark places of this world. But we're not always comfortable with that, which is often a response to a fear of being rejected. We're afraid that people won't like us, that they won't accept us, that we will be embarrassed, that they will push back if we truly live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ when we're around them, which again is decidedly different than how the world expects people to live. And in the process, when we resist that calling in our lives as disciples to go and make disciples, if we resist that long enough, eventually looking out for our own interests first becomes a default in our lives. It becomes normal for us, which is also how we blend in, by the way, because that's what most people do. That's how most people live. We'll look out for number one first. And so I won't tell you there's no risk living in a manner worthy of the gospel because there surely is. There is always risk associated with living for Christ. But I read something this week that was quite compelling and I want to share it with you this morning before we close in the hopes that maybe it will rekindle a desire, a passion within us really, to understand that for every person out there who is ready to reject us for living in a manner worthy of the gospel, there are many, many more people who are desperately looking for us. People who desperately want to connect with true disciples of Christ so they too can become disciples because they know the life they're currently living is not working. But listen, if we don't stand out from the crowd, if we don't honor God and each other by shining as lights into the world, if, if we don't celebrate the difference that Christ has made in our lives instead of hiding it, then those people who are looking for us, for true disciples of Christ, those people may never find us even though we're sitting right next to them at work or at school or at our kids' baseball game or at the market or wherever God puts them in our lives. How will they ever know to ask us about Jesus if they don't clearly see him in our lives? Sure, we may be rejected in the process, but for every person who turns you away, there are many, many more who are waiting for you to tell them about what Jesus has done in your life and the difference that he can make in their lives. 
Tom Rainier, he's a prolific author and researcher, published an article based on research that he's done over the past several years. The article is titled, What Non-Christians Really Think About Christians. And he explains the premise of the article by saying, over the past several years, my research teams and I have interviewed thousands of unchurched non-Christians. Among the more interesting insights I gleaned were those where the interviewees shared with me their perspective of Christians. In this article, I grouped the seven most common types of comments in order of frequency. I then follow that uh, with a representative statement with a, with a direct quote from a non-Christian. So I'm going to read for you now the top responses given by non-Christians concerning what they think about Christians and then those quotes. Number one, Christians are against more things than they're for. And this is the quote. It just seems to me Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative. They seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. And Paul said to the church, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. The second most frequently given response from non-Christians, and honestly, this one surprised me. Number two, I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. And the quote is, I'm really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian who would be willing to spend some time with me. Wow. Paul said to the church, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The third top response from Rainier's research, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. Are you kidding me? The quote, the Bible really fascinates me, but I I don't want to go to a stuffy and legalistic church to learn about it. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or at a place like Starbucks. And Paul said to the church, shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word, holding out to others the word of life. Number four, I don't, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. The quote is, I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than other people I know. The only exception would be Mormons. They really seem to take their beliefs seriously. And Paul said to the church, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Number five, I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc. from a Christian. And the quote is, my wife is threatening to divorce me, and I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian, and he seems to have it all together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. And Paul said to the church, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let God use you in the work that he's doing in you in your life to minister to others. Number six, some Christians try to act like they have no problems. The quote is, Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put on such an act. I know better. Paul said to the church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And finally, number seven, 
I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. The quote is, I, I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What is weird is that I'm 32 years old and I've never had a Christian invite me to church in my entire life. And again, Paul said to the church, shine as lights in the world. Don't hide what he's done for you. Don't hide your faith. Don't hide your church. Don't hide your convictions. Don't hide your testimony. Let them shine as lights to those around you. And then he finishes the article with this statement. Do you see the pattern? Non-Christians want to interact with Christians. They want to see Christians' actions match their beliefs. They want Christians to be real. Which means we have to be willing to let our differences, everything about Christ in us that makes us different, we have to be willing to let those differences shine like lights to those who don't believe what we believe. Which will surely mean that some will reject us. Yes. But for everyone who turns us away, there will be others who will say, can you tell me more? When can we do this again? Would it be all right if I came back to your church with you again next week? And that's just the beginning. You see, because our calling isn't simply to, to get people saved. Our calling is to make disciples. To teach them all that he has commanded us. So don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to be humble toward God and others. Don't be afraid to obey God and others. Don't be afraid to honor God and others even when you're surrounded by unbelievers and it's extremely uncomfortable. Don't be afraid because for every one of those who mocks you, makes fun of you, argues with you, belittles you, rejects you, for every one of those, there will be others who will follow you right to the foot of the cross. To the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To the one whose name is above every name. Where they will bow their knees and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then they'll follow you to Bible study. They'll follow you to community groups. They'll follow you to church. Where they will be learning right along with the rest of us all that he has commanded us. That's what it looks like. When disciples make disciples. So let's get on with it. Let's be known for our humility. Let's be known for our obedience to his word as we hold it out to others. Let's be known for how much we honor him and other people in everything that we do. Let's be known for how different we are from the rest of the world as we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray.